and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, legends. Welcome back for another week of Challenges That Change Us. How is your week going? You might be out there walking the pavement, cleaning the house, maybe even driving your car as you listen to this episode. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning into our episode today. It's a goodie. So let me introduce you to Bethany Wormald, a runner with a long list of achievements across the 5 to 42k mark. In 2019, she set the Guinness Book record for the fastest marathon runner dressed as, (gasps) you're going to have to listen to the episode to find out. And that was actually her fourth Guinness World Record. Bethany is also placed in the top three in her age group in fun runs in Blacktown, Penrith, Tamworth, Woi Woi, Fingal Bay, Nelson Bay, the list goes on. She has volunteered for more than 50 park runs and has run over 250 herself. Bethany now has long COVID and has developed POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which saw her barely even able to walk for a whole year and from which she has not fully recovered. Prior to this, Bethany was on the organizing committee for a cancer fundraising run associated with Tour de Cure. She has also just returned to her volunteering gig with Surf Lifesaving Australia, where she tries to provide first aid without ever getting in the water. Bethany is a powerhouse of a woman, and when you hear her story, you will see the impact that long COVID and POTS can truly have on someone's well-being and life. As you know, I also have POTS, and I'm so passionate about increasing awareness across Australia in this space. The current research here reflects international data. In regards to long COVID, 80% of people are female and 70% have POTS. An astonishing 60% are unable to return to work. Just pause for a moment and soak up those statistics. This is exactly why it is so important we raise awareness around this condition. Imagine if your daughter, son, sister, cousin was one of the 60% of people unable to return to work and took years and years and years to get a diagnosis. If you listen to this episode and you know someone who might be experiencing something similar, jump on the POTS Foundation website for more information. Early diagnosis can make the world of difference to your loved ones, family and friends. Also, I am super excited to announce that the Australian POTS Foundation is pleased to be presenting their 2024 conference, Better Together. This conference will explore the latest research and practical ways of living with these invisible conditions such as POTS, Ehlers-Danos Syndrome and Long COVID. You can come in person to Adelaide or the conference can be online. It's Friday the 22nd of March, which is our consumer conference. Patients, parents, partners, caregivers, friends, anyone living with POTS or supporting someone living with POTS. And then on Saturday, it's a scientific conference. 
for medical nurses, allied health and researchers. You can definitely reach out to me via LinkedIn or Challenges That Change Us Facebook group. Shoot me a DM if you have any questions around POTS or around the conference or jump on the POTS website. Now, let me introduce you to this world record holder, Bethany. Welcome, Bethany, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on this morning and giving up your time. My pleasure. Bethany, I love to start every episode with asking our guests what animal best describes them and what is it in particular about that animal? I've had a chance to think about this and I want to start by flipping it on its head because if you had my two Burmese cats on here and you asked them, they would say that they identify as humans. <laughs> and just to flip that back to me, at this stage of my life, I am a little bit like a Burmese cat. So our Burmese cats, they'll run around, have a little bit of energy, get a few things done, and then they go and have a big rest. And that's definitely where I'm at. They also, they don't like strangers. They don't like crowds. They don't like big noises. That's also where I'm at for basically for health reasons. I find, you know, strangers can be a bit draining in terms of where my cognition is at. But if I've met you a couple of times and you move from stranger into acquaintance, then I'm pretty happy to hang out. And that's what our little cats are like. And I would also say that I have become quite happy in my own company. And that's a pretty kind of Burmese cat thing to do as well. And finally, I would say I'm a bit chatty which is part of the Burmese cat breed. They like to chat. It's funny you should say that. I actually am away at the moment from home and I'm staying with a friend that's also got a chronic illness and we were only sitting on the couch this morning having the discussion about how looking over at the dishes that need to be done and how hard that job is compared to going for a walk around the block on your own compared to having to be on and up when you're with people in a social setting. And so I'm sure we're going to hear lots of that today, but it was funny because when you mentioned there that strangers are draining at the moment with the change in your life, I definitely resonate with that because we just were having that conversation like 15 minutes ago. And Bethany, before we get into your challenge and your story and the heart of it, I guess what would be really helpful, I know for me as well, having just met you, is to kind of paint a picture of your life leading into getting COVID. One of the main things I used to do was run a lot. So five or six times a week, probably 50 kilometres a week. I was usually training for something, usually some kind of fun run. To be fair, most of the time I took those fun runs quite seriously. So I'd be following a training program. I'd be eating really well to make sure I was supporting that training. And outside of running, I was and am a stepmom. And particularly the couple of years before COVID, my stepson, Jack, was just finishing school. So that was actually really quite busy supporting him through those kind of last couple of important school years. I really had this thing about I never wanted to spend time on the couch, right? Time on the couch to me was dead time, like not into that at all. I always wanted to be out. So whether I was, I don't know, like my husband and I might be like, oh, there's a band playing at the local pub. Let's go and see that band. Or whether it was catching up with friends. The other important thing, just to paint the picture of who I was, is I used to 
volunteer with three different organisations. So I used to volunteer with Park Run. I used to volunteer with Surf Life Saving. I'm not a great swimmer. I was a first aider. I just have to point out I was not really in the water at all. And I was also on a working group, a committee for a fun run that was raising funds for cancer that was actually related to my work. So yes, I also worked full time, you name it, I was out there doing it. And that was what life was like. And where were you working at the time? I still work for one of the big four banks. So big organisation, sometimes lots going on. So I'm not saying like I I had good work-life balance, but it was definitely up and down. There were definitely times when I was doing plenty at work. Yeah. So it sounds like, just to feed that back to you, it sounds like you were kind of someone that was a real go-getter in the sense that like I just, the word lively comes to mind when you were talking. It's like, if you weren't doing this, you were doing that. And if you weren't at home, like cooking your nutrition, you were out with your friends or going to a band or on the road running or at work doing like in your busy work period. It's like, it was just kind of this go, go, go. But it sounds that I heard a bit of a richness in that life. Like it was the life that you kind of wanted to be in. Is that right? Yeah, look, that is fair to say. I mean, today we're going to talk about a health challenge I've had recently It's fair to say I had a health hiccup maybe eight years ago. I found a couple of DVTs in my legs, so deep vein thrombosis. So I had two, I'm going to use the word massive, two massive clots, like 10 centimetres and 12 centimetres, so huge. Oh, huge. Yeah, huge. (laughs) That was quite a surprise. But really where I'm going with that story is in the moment when I found those clots, I was not amazingly healthy. I was just kind of middle of the road. Like I was just middle of the road. And my doctor was very, you know, this is not super uncommon. Like just in case anyone ever needs to know this, it was from the contraceptive pill, right? It's actually not super uncommon. And he was quite calm, but I was not calm, can I say. And the nice technician who, you know, was doing a scan, you know, the scan with the wand and the gel, she was doing this scan and she was looking for a muscle strain because the doctor had said something wrong with your leg, go and check it out with this, you know, get a muscle scan. She did the scan and she found nothing. And she said to me, and she had, you know, when someone has that worried look on their face, she said to me, okay, so this is not muscular. I'm pretty sure this is vascular. I'm just going to go and talk to our clinic doctor. And I was like, oh, there's a doctor at this place where you get yourself scanned. Who knew, right? I'm going to go just talk to the doctor and then we'll do a different kind of scan. And so she did this different kind of scan and she said, okay, now you need to go and see your doctor like now. Like right now. And we're in the emergency right now. Yeah, <laughs> How do I calmly tell you <laughs> that you need to walk out this door to the doctor and we need to do something right now? It was, it, well, that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it really was a health hiccup. And as I say, my GP was very like, this is not unusual. This happens. We will put you on blood thinners. It will be fine. But, you know, you'd be naive to not think, well, what happens if a little piece of clot breaks off? and goes somewhere, well, that's called an aneurysm, right? Yeah. And blood thinners also, like if you cut yourself or, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens even just with blood thinners. Yeah. So coming back to your question, which was about richness of life and activity of life, I'd had this health hiccup eight years ago, which actually shook me up a little bit. And I kind of used it deliberately as a trigger to improve things. I just thought, you know what? This is one of those moments where 
if you decide to pay attention to this moment, then you can really use it to power yourself forward. And I, I made all sorts of lifestyle changes after that. Can I just ask, because there will be people listening that are in that spot, maybe not a clot, but they'll have something else where they've just been given some news and they're like, oh, maybe it's time to shine a light on something different in my life. Or maybe it's time to give a little bit more energy and resources to my health, my nutrition, my exercise. But knowing that and doing that can be very, very different things. So just before we go into your challenge, what did that look like for you? Once you made that decision, what were some of those steps that you took? I started with what I could, which kind of sounds like obvious advice, but specific to what was happening then, I couldn't immediately go and exercise because I needed to be careful with what was going on with the clot, right? So I needed to spend some time on my blood thinners and also I was really quite ill. (laughs) Like I actually, without going into it too much, but just coming off the contraceptive pill and then going on blood thinners at the same time, it just, it makes you feel quite ill. And so what I did immediately was mostly rest and think about the food that was going into my body. So that was, so step one was kind of resting nutrition and step two in fact, was running. And I had been a jogger before that point, like just a kind of jogged a little bit every now and then, not consistently, not regularly. But instead, as soon as I got to, I had a particular check-in and I think it was at the three-month mark where I went back and got another scan and we saw that the clots were breaking down and everything was heading in the right direction. And that was then permission to exercise as much as I wanted to. Which translates to world records, just in case anyone's wondering. It's like, you can go and exercise. Great, I'm going to go and smash some world records. (laughs) Well, they came later. And, And I should say, sometimes people don't admit that also I just had a little bit of luck, right? And this is, so just a serendipitous moment, I guess you could call it, which is about six months after my DVTs, my husband and I discovered Park Run. And I just didn't have any concept of how addictive parkrun was going to be. You know, I thought this was just this, you know, we're just going to go across the road and run around for a bit and jog and that'll be all very light and maybe it won't be particularly. And it's it's true, parkrun is what you make it, right? It can be as light as you like. But for me, I ended up falling in love with running. I'm curious, having been a runner myself, and I knew I would want to ask these questions, even though that's not why you've come on the podcast. <laughs> so just a little selfish moment here. How did you go from running park run to running half marathons, running full marathons, breaking world records? Like, can you just give us a little piece of that journey? With running, what I discovered is I got to a place where I found that running was delightful. So I guess, and this might be about finding something that is your thing. So for other people, it might be dancing, it might be swimming, it might be, I don't know what, but it's such a gift in life to have gone and found the one particular aerobic activity that is your thing. And that is what I found with running. And I, I just, I don't know. I, like, I almost don't know because I just went and did it in terms of the daily piece of it. And then I found, and this really you know, looking back, I was kind of had this sense of, I can't believe that people do this. They must be mad. I found out that people go on runs together as mates. Like you go on a run and you chat. Like, I mean, that was like mind blowing, this idea that you could run and chat and enjoy yourself. But I did that as well. And then I just started to get into this, you know, well, let's see what else we could do. I mean, park run is 5k, which is, you know, absolutely a respectable distance. 
but it did start enrolling myself in a couple of half marathons, just try to see what that kind of distance was like. And then I had a good friend of mine who is quite an accomplished runner. And I bumped into her at the start line of a half marathon and she said something like, oh, you know, I find that with these things, it's always good to go hard or go home. <laughs> and I started to realize that actually, sometimes if you go hard, you can get quite good results. Yeah. So I kind of ended up with this semi-competitive spirit. I can understand that addiction because I got that as well and not the competitive part. I was always one of the last ones to cross the line in any half marathon for sure. But it's that love of when you find a love of something, whether it be running or cycling or swimming or boxing or whatever it is, it is this sort of almost addiction that comes up with the events, the social the feelings you get when you do it. But it doesn't start there, like you said, you know, you can really hear as you're talking that it was like one bit and then it was the next bit and then your world expanded and then it expanded again. How did you go though from that to world record? Like where does that idea even come from to think I'm going to try and break a world record or did you go to the book and be like, what's in there and what can I do? You know, that was (laughs) the question I've been wanting to ask this whole time. Absolutely. Look, let me tell you, a very fun way to spend a Friday night on a couch. You know, earlier I was saying something uh, possibly self-aggrandizing, like I was never on the couch. But when I was on the couch on a Friday night, maybe resting up before a Saturday of running, a good night on couch is looking at the Guinness World Record website. And just having a bit of a search, you know, they've got a good search tool. Just go in there and just see, you know, what what records might actually be not, you know, in the stratosphere, maybe something that's achievable by a normal person. I've got into a place where I realised that with running, even if you're not elite, you can set your own goals and smash them. And it's just a really delightful thing about running because it's so measurable, you know, it's easy to set your own goal. And I'd, I'd kind of each year I would say, okay, what am I going to do this year? You know, I'm going to run X kilometers or I'm going to run X times a week or I'm going to do this particular race or, you know, whatever it is and map those goals out kind of in December, January for the next year. So I was in in this goal setting mind and I must have been looking at maybe the London Marathon where lots of Guinness World Records every year, the Guinness World Records does this big thing where they'll have, you know, they'll have a judge at the finishing line and they will, you know, officially certify stacks of records, like 20 or 30 records every year will fall at the London Marathon. It's actually quite a big and, frankly, hilarious thing because that is that is where what it was about for me. It was about, yes, I want to do the record, but also I want to do something hilarious, you know, because if you can't run super fast, you can't run fast, you may as well run funny. And I could run a little bit fast, like not, you know what I mean? Not elite, but just that next run below elite. I was like, okay, that's fast enough. The other important thing is I found out that Guinness World Records, they will turn up in person at one race in Australia, which happens to be Sydney. So Sydney Running Festival, the Guinness World Records guys are there. And at the time I was living in Sydney. So that all kind of came together. And yeah, I just thought, okay, I think I can do this. I think there's a couple of records in there that might have my name on them. And I should also say, I also did a fair bit of homework to make sure I chose a record that was 
easy enough. So <laughs> when you get into it, there's a lot of costumes. And if you choose a costume that you can run in, then you are doing the right thing, in my humble opinion. There's a small part of me that's like, after this interview, <laughs> I am going to go <laughs> and have a look. <laughs> Is there anything that I can break? <laughs> it's really inspiring though. Like so I don't funny. even know where that comes so, from. It, it it's is, amazing though. Honestly, it's so inspiring. Very, very hilarious. The kind of important record that I like to talk about, because I, I ended up doing four of them for various reasons, and mostly because I was kind of working up to the big one. So the big one, I am still the Guinness World Record holder for the fastest marathon dressed as a cartoon character. And I dressed as Betty Rubble from the Flintstones, mostly because she has an outfit that you can run in. How long did it take you to find who you're going to go as? That, that did actually take a little while. So probably... I would call that six months. Wow. Yeah, including. So three months of training, six months of finding the outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. No, the admin for a Guinness World Record is about as hard as the running. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I applied to the Guinness World Records guys to do the fastest marathon dressed as a singer. And I wanted to be the yellow wiggle and they rejected my application. They're like, no, no, you can't be the yellow wiggle because that's actually a person. That's not a character. We both could stay here for the whole podcast, right? Like, I, <laughs> And this has happened once before when I got someone on that was an endurance athlete. And I realized after the end of the pod that I was like, mm, I didn't really talk about the challenge because I was so invested <laughs> in talking about running. So I think it's really really nice, Bethany, that you've been able to paint a bit of a picture about that life that you were living. And, you know, even just now, as we're talking that fun, loving, smashing challenges, choosing a goal, hitting the mark, working, stepmom, you know, all of those things, like that fullness, that fullness of life. Talk to me about when COVID hit and some of the challenges that presented themselves and what that looked like for you. And that kind of, I can already like picture it that, you know, two stark differences between the two chapters of your life. I got COVID 18 months ago. And when I came down with COVID, I remember my husband, Matt and I, we had heard about long COVID. And to be honest, we actually thought from the get-go that I was a candidate for it because I had often had post-viral fatigue from other things. You know, if I caught a cold, it would go for a week. If I caught the flu, that would be something that I would really take a while to recover from. Even all of my vaccines, I had actually spent a week in bed after all of them. So there's clearly something in terms of spike protein and COVID that was not good for me. So I caught COVID. Matt did not catch COVID. So he nicked off. (laughs) Actually, as you'll hear, he has been such a rock throughout this whole journey. But I sent him away. I said, you go somewhere else. You don't have this. I'll stay and look after myself. And the first three days, not too bad. And I actually thought maybe I'm going to get away with this. Maybe I'm going to have the version of COVID that everyone else has had that's actually not too bad. Day four, no, no. So day four, I was in bed in a really like super fatigued, I'm going to be in bed for a while kind of way. And I remember the night before Matt came back, I remember shuffling to the kitchen and eating a packet of chips for dinner because that was the level of energy that I had. And I thought, oh, geez, this is not great. But surely, you know, it's only day four. Surely at some point I'll get better. But it turns out that that actually was the start of months of being some days bed bound, mostly housebound. So 
Long COVID is, for me at least, is mostly post-viral fatigue. And when I say fatigue, I don't mean like you've just run a big run and you're tired and you're going to have a nap and then you're going to be restored. I mean, it's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to do anything. So when you say to people, oh, you know, I've got long COVID and I need to spend a lot of time in bed, I think they might be tempted to think, oh, you're watching Netflix. No, (laughs) you're not watching Netflix because your brain doesn't work, right? And you're not catching up on your education and watching documentaries because your brain doesn't work. So what you're actually doing is in bed, either asleep or maybe meditating or breathing, like just kind of practicing your breathing, that might be where you're at. To kind of wrap that up a little bit, I just want to talk about my particular symptoms of long COVID because clearly, you know, there's a whole fatigue thing going on. Talked about that a fair bit. I also had heart palpitations, like pounding, pounding heart. I got a thing called POTS. That's an acronym, P-O-T-S. The overlap between POTS and long COVID is really strong. They are, you know, you could argue the same things. I was just going to say POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. For those that don't know, I also have POTS, but mine is not from COVID. Like the huge amount, the statistics is overwhelming that I think it's 80% at the moment. And don't quote me on the stats because they're constantly changing, but 80% of long COVID, it does develop into POTS. And so it is part of the conversation today for sure. And my cognition is not what it was. Remind me to come back and talk about POTS, but I developed POTS. I had terrible reflux, massive headaches, insomnia and wakefulness and unrefreshing sleep. That was kind of the pattern of my long COVID. But the reason why I've talked about the fatigue so much is because it was the thing that was stopping me the most was the fatigue, but also because it's got that contrast between I could run a marathon and then I came down with COVID and I could walk at my nadir, my limit was about seven meters. So I could walk from my bedroom to the next room Like I'd get out into the passageway and I'm not kidding, I would hang onto the wall to then shuffle into the next room. And that's kind of what my long COVID picture was like. Mm. And, you know, I think we spoke about this earlier. It it is that contrast between being able to run 42Ks and not being able to walk seven metres. I mean, I didn't have long COVID, but I have POTS and I couldn't walk to the kitchen to make a cup of tea. And I couldn't walk from my bed to the ensuite to have a shower. Couldn't get that far. The fatigue and the... I don't know, for me, it was an unsafeness when I stood up. It just, the world felt unsafe. Like I wasn't able to stand or I was going to fall over or at the time I didn't know it was POTS. So I just was like, I'm dying. Like literally thought I was dying. Did you have moments that you wondered that? (laughs) Possibly naively, no. (laughs) Uh, No, my dark moments were around grief because I really thought it was forever. I think there's there's a, a good phrase about trust the process. But the fascinating thing about my journey is I tried that a couple of times and eventually I realized there's no process because you're living tomorrow's disability today. You know, like no one is really recognizing this as a disability and a chronic condition quite yet. When I say recognizing it, yes, long COVID has a name and many medical people will appreciate that it exists, but it hasn't yet really got good systems around it. There's not a, oh, here are the obvious next five steps. If you come down with long COVID, you and your GP, there is no playbook, you know. I mean, those resources are, I suspect, on their way. 
So that was my kind of, I didn't think I was dying, but I did, as it turns out incorrectly, I did kind of think this might be forever because the processes that I thought were there to help me didn't. I had a couple of goes where I went to see a particular specialist and I went in with high hopes thinking, oh, this person's really going to help me. And I walked out with not much and that was a real kind of, that was a bit of a, a low point, I would say. And are you able to share with us a little bit about that grief? Like what were some thoughts that went through your mind or how did that show up in your world? When I was five or six months in, I was probably at my most housebound and bedbound, which really surprised me because I'd been quite housebound, bedbound at like the one, two, three months. And then at four months, I was kind of up a little bit. I was doing 10-minute walks. And then four, who knows why, I had this setback at month five and six. And so I had grief at that point. So at six months, it just it felt like forever. I look back on that and I go, oh, how naive. You know, there must be people who have chronic fatigue or as it's properly known, and I hope I get this pronunciation correct, myalgic encephalitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome, I think is the correct way to call it. So these are people who have coped a lot longer than I coped with the housebound and bedbound thing. But I really, in that moment of possible naivety, I thought, oh, this is forever. And so the grief was, I thought, I'm never going to run, never. The I am statements, which are so powerful, I am a, I, I am a runner. I'm crying too because <laughs> I can relate so much. Yeah, it's huge. Interestingly, in my grief, and I think it's great to talk about grief rather than depression. I wasn't depressed. I, I really wasn't. I I had my quite sincere gratitude practice. You know, I would count my blessings every day and there were a lot of them. I mean, and I can, you know, I can list them now. Even when I couldn't get around much, I had many, many things to be thankful for. But the I am a dot dot that, you know, and these are classic, I think, psychological concepts around what's your purpose, you know. What you identify with. Yeah, correct. I'm a wife. I am a stepmom. I am a runner. I am a, you know, contributing member of the community who gives back. You know, earlier we were talking about how I used to volunteer and I had this real kind of, this is my time now that our child is an adult, this is my time to give back. This is a great window to give back and I had just kind of got into that and along came long COVID and I couldn't move. So yeah, the grief was really tough. When you say those I am statements, it's really hard to know what to replace them with. Yes. When you're bed bound. Yeah. It's like, what am I if I'm not these things? And what could I be if I can't stand up? And I don't want to speak for you, but what value do I bring to this world and to my family and to my husband and to my friends when I can't walk to the kitchen. The challenge also is it's not just the, oh, I can't walk. Because you're so sick and you can't necessarily think super well either and maybe you're not sleeping that well, that's certainly the case for me, I just found that I had no time. So I would try to describe myself in percentage terms to people, like as in I was basically 10% of my old self for roughly a year. Might have been 11 months, but let's let's call it a year. And if you imagine a normal person has eight hours of sleep, eight hours of work, eight hours of recreation, if you you take maybe 16 hours, let's get rid of the sleep, right, and just talk about the eight hours of work, eight hours of recreation, 16 hours. If you've got 10% of that, then you've got 1.6 hours per day. And in that 1.6 hours, I was 
making a cup of tea, well, that's 10 minutes, you know, sitting at the dinner table, possibly with my head in my hands because I couldn't sit up properly. I mean, 1.6 hours and then gone. So yeah, finding your sense of purpose on 1.6 hours a day, that was really hard. And having an outside world understand what's happening. I mean, I think for anyone that's in the chronic illness life, like that lives with that on a daily basis, it is hand on my heart. I didn't understand it until I had it. Like I thought I got it. I thought I had empathy. I thought intellectually I understood what people went through. I had no idea what it was like for someone that sits on the couch and looks at the dishes and thinks, I don't know that I can get up and wash them or that might be able to go for a walk down the street, but when they get home, they can't do something. So that doesn't make sense to the outside world. They might be like, but you just did this. So why can't you do this? Or, you know, you're talking to me now. Why can't we stand up and walk while we talk? You know, those sorts of things. And you mentioned it earlier with COVID in particular, it's like when I say I've had a stroke, people have a framework they can put that to. But when you got long COVID, it was so early. And even now it's still such early days that people don't have that framework to have an understanding of what that translates to. I think that's right. And I think it's the trouble with invisible illness. I went for a really important appointment to Adelaide to see one of Australia's best doctors for POTS. To go and get some testing for POTS, I needed to go off a couple of medicines that I was on. And so I got a wheelchair to go in and out of the airport. Terrific. So good. Because it made my disability obvious. Everyone was like, oh, look at that nice lady there. She needs a bit of a hand, you know, so good. So chronic illness, invisible illness, invisible disability. So hard. I like. I think people genuinely want to help. I actually think, let's put a number on it, 90% of people are actually quite good, right? I'm not saying everybody is a lovely person. There are many people out there who are happy to help people who are having a rough time, but you just don't see it. And especially now where I'm at a midpoint, you know, I'm well out of bed. My physical recovery is going really well, but my cognitive recovery is pretty slow, I guess I would call that. I have a fair amount of cognitive fatigue. That is really hard for people to understand. There's no obvious framework for that. It's not incredibly difficult for people to understand. It's just not super obvious. You just need to explain it. I think it is hard for people to understand. Like I gave a keynote the other day and I couldn't find my words, but to the audience it looked like I was talking normally. But in my head I was like, I don't, what word do I want? You know, where is it? How do I find it? Like, I don't know. I always think back to before I had POTS to how I have POTS. And it's so clear in my head now, but I didn't have that understanding before. But I guess talking about like the cognition part might be a time to open it up about POTS. Like we've used this word lots and lots and lots. So what does that word kind of mean for you? How does POTS look like in your world? And I think that that's that really heavy cognition challenge. That's where that's come up, isn't it? Well, I want to start with just teasing out a little bit the point you made earlier, because you're absolutely right. It is something like 80% of people with long COVID have POTS. So I'm just going to tease that out for a little bit. It is not unusual for POTS to come with fatigue and for POTS to come with cognition issues and for POTS to come with digestive issues. So I've had really terrible reflux with my long COVID and that is not unusual at all with POTS. So there's a number of things that are really similar in both and which bit of what I have is long COVID and which bit of what I have is POTS depending on which expert you talk to, could actually conceivably be the same thing. And then to talk about what is POTS. So 
before I talk about, oh, this is what the POTS stands for, just conceptually, it's about your autonomic nervous system not working. So it also gets called dysautonomia, or if you like the umbrella that POTS sits underneath, the umbrella is called dysautonomia. So your autonomic nervous system is everything that's running your automatic things, such as breathing, heart rate, blood pressure. You know, so that's your autonomic nervous system, and mine is not really working. <laughs> so, it, so in terms of how that shows up for me in particular, it's mostly around blood pressure and heart rate. So that brings us back to what does POTS stand for? So POTS stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And if you think of the first two letters, the postural and the orthostatic, that's as simple as I'm standing up. And the tachycardia is heart rate above 100. And the syndrome, syndrome means this is not a disease with a root cause that we can fix. This is a set of symptoms that we're managing. And in particular for me, the problem is with my blood pressure being unstable and a little bit low. And I'm now on a wonderful drug, <laughs> on a wonderful drug that basically boosts my blood pressure helps my blood get around and surprise, surprise, helps blood get into my head instead of into my feet, which is where it might like to stay. And so when you've got oxygenated blood in your head, you can think better. So when you talk about that not being able to think, describe that. Now it is mostly cognitive fatigue. I just can't think for too long. And in particular, I can't think about too many things at once. So I'm not too bad if I'm sitting quietly working on, you know, working in my home office without lots of noise and working on one thing, not too bad. And so therefore, yes, I work, which is terrific. I like I took six months off work. I did zero work for six months and now I work three days a week, but I can only work from home. So I've been into the office a couple of times and the extraneous cognitive tasks, you know, so things that are I call them extraneous because they're off topic, right? They're not things I should need to focus on. And yet they are taking all of my cognitive energy away. So you go into the office and you've got noise and lights and random people moving around and unexpected conversations and all those things just drain my battery super fast. And so that's the cognitive issue for me at the moment. But before I was on the good drugs for pots, right, which was... 11 months, right? I spent 11 months not on quite the right drugs for POTS. I was on some other things and uh, didn't quite do it for me. And that meant that I would forget words. You will hear stories of people with long COVID with, oh, I forgot this word, you know. Last Christmas, my husband cooked some turnips in Christmas veggies. And the next day I was trying to talk about these turnips and I couldn't remember the word. I was like, oh, and then we had that vegetable that we never have, but we had it because it was Christmas and I don't know what it was. I ate it yesterday, but it's gone from my memory. The scary thing is I'm now thinking, was it a turnip? I think it was a turnip. <laughs> I describe it as like I was on a six-lane highway and I had lots of things I could think about and I could take in the lights and take in the music and take in who's in the room, plus think about what I wanted to say, plus think about what we're going to do next. And then everything shuts down to this one-lane highway in the dark. And it's like, I need to just focus on can I see the road in front of me? And everything else that comes across like a deer or a roo or a flashing light just distracts me and then I've lost it. So, you know, it's like this simple simplicity in cognition that I crave now. If someone asks me to think too hard, <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> I don't know. Is that, is that 
Yeah. I, I think that's a perfect metaphor. And the thing that is great about that metaphor is that it gets across, I'm pretty good in my one lane, right? Like I'm, I actually back myself in my one lane. You know, I'm, I'm working again. I'm backing the work that I'm doing. You know, I'm not concerned at all that I'm handing in bad work. I'm not concerned at all that it's taking me twice as long to get a piece of work done. But if you wanted to go to a cafe that had lots of music on it, that would actually be a terrible experience for me. That would literally be painful. Hey everyone, I've got an amazing opportunity for all of us to meet face-to-face live in a room. Let's run a DISC personality profiling workshop for your team. Doesn't it suck as a leader when you feel like you're saying one thing, but it's not translating to your team? Or when a colleague does a task in a certain way that makes your jaw drop or your eye twitch? What is the one thing that your workplace needs right now to elevate your team's performance? It's a common language of communication. DISC is a simple yet powerful framework that helps us understand how your team responds, relates and behaves to one another. By the end of this workshop, you'll walk away with a step-by-step guide to effective communication and have some fun and some laughs with the team along the way. I'd recommend Ali. She's um, fantastic at what she does, but also brings a high level of passion and commitment to the program. It's just the simplicity of it. It's not overcomplicated. It's straightforward and it's analytical. The overwhelming feedback was that they thoroughly enjoyed it and came out with some really useful tools to be able to engage and to use in their um, work life and their home life. With over 40 years of research and testing, DISC is not just a buzzword. It is a time-tested tool that delivers profound results. If you're ready to unlock your team's full potential, drive engagement and elevate performance, or perhaps just even a little bit curious about how this can help you, get in touch with me today via email or LinkedIn. Now back to challenges that change us. And to give some more perspective on this, like let's just talk about what we both had to do to get here on this phone call today. (laughs) So, you know, like I woke up and I woke up later. I didn't get up early in case it was going to use my cognition. I walked outside to my friend and she said, let's have breakfast. I said, no, actually if I eat, it might impact my digestive system and I need to be on for an hour. So maybe I'm just going to have a coffee. And she started talking. I said, actually, I'm just going to go into the room because I can't chat to you and then go and do a podcast. I need silence or I'll be using up some of my energy that I won't have in the podcast because I know you and I had a conversation about actually how long we could go for. You know, we were concerned about a whole hour. Can our brains keep going for that amount of time? So what did your morning look like before you came into this? Look, the answer to your question is more what did my last night look like? So last night I didn't go out. So part of my long COVID recovery, I'm pleased to say that my current kind of milestones of success is I've started to go out at night. And so this has only been in the last couple of months. I've been able to go out at night socially. And that that's a really big deal, right? For someone yeah. with, with kind of cognition of where I'm at. But last night was, you know, I had an opportunity to go out and I didn't. So last night would usually be there's a run club that I go to and and actually I don't do the run to be honest. I do a walk and we go for a meal in the dodgy diner at the bowling club and it's short, right? So I go and do this thing because it's time bound. You know, you go and get a little bit of exercise, get a meal, but the meal is an hour max. Go home, home by eight o'clock, feed up. So it's achievable in the amount of things that I can do. So last night I skipped that. I went to bed at 8.30. You know, it's reading my very gentle book 
a book that I've already read before, right? So not cognitively taxing at all, lights out at nine o'clock. So that was part of my prep for this. And then this morning, I have not spoken to any strangers. I've spoken to my husband. That's not cognitively taxing. And this will sound strange, but this is what works for me. And I went for a jog because the jog picks me up, right? It gets my blood moving. It makes me feel like me. It gets my endorphins going and no dose. Yeah. Interesting. So that's how I got here, you know, exercise, no cognition and no dose. Wow. And for anyone listening that has long COVID or POTS, I mean, it's, I just going to like highlight that little bit about the run, because I remember when I first got it being a runner, I was like, I'm never going to run again. I'm never going to be able to, like, I've just got back on the bike because one of our other POTSies, one of our amazing EPs in Australia has been cycling. And I saw him post on LinkedIn that he's doing 500 Ks. And I was like, if he can do it, I can do it. Maybe not in the same time because I don't have the same conditioning, but it absolutely inspired me to have a crack. And when I spoke to you, Bethany, it inspired me to think, I have not stopped thinking about running since I spoke to you. I'm like, I might not be able to do it this month. I might not be able to do it in the next six months. But honestly, in my heart of hearts, I'm like, in 12 months, I'm going to run 5Ks. I think. And so that inspiration. And so if you're out there listening to us talk now and you're bed bound or this is, you're right in the thick of it. I mean, I don't know what your journey is going to look like and it will definitely look different to ours. I can tell you that, but there is that hope that one day you will be able to slowly introduce back in the things that are important to you, the things that you find as a priority, the things that you value in your life, maybe not to the full extent when we talked about that percentage and you were saying you're at 10% when you were at your worst. You know, I described my now I reckon I've jumped from 60 to 80 percent in the last sort of six wow. weeks only amazing. but to be at 80 percent like that was unachievable oh, amazing yeah. yeah I know for me when I was really sick I needed to hear those stories <laughs> like your story but I do have a couple of questions because we are talking about how much time we have I'm aware of your energy the first thing I want to ask about is what was the hardest part for you when you look over this journey what were the hard bits for you personally the hardest part with long COVID slash pots is most days you feel terrible at some point and that continues you know <laughs> I was listening to an expert on a pod and, and a, like a chronic fatigue doctor who's super well respected and he was talking about you know getting people towards more better days more more good days than bad days and I was thinking buddy a day you want a whole day yeah. of good Good Let's game for two hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, and it's fair to say my proportion of good is fabulous now. I'm in a really happy spot, right? I can get enough things done, do things that make my heart sing. I can fulfill, you know, various parts of my purpose, all of that kind of stuff. But at its worst, and even now at its inverted commas best, right, the hard bit is that you feel crap at some point. And literally it's a conversation that I have in my own head quite often is, oh, just I feel really crap. Why is that? Oh, that's right. I got long COVID. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I've forgotten because I've been feeling good for some hours. And then I'll feel like terrible and I'll go and have a lie down and I'll just talk to myself about this will pass. And so that's definitely a gem for me in this time. This will pass, you know, and just having to hang on to that. I should no, I feel like I'm doing super well in so many different ways and I can run a bit and I can work a bit and I can socialize a bit. But most mornings I wake up and I feel terrible until I've taken my medication, which takes about an hour to work. Like that is quite hard. I feel quite bad most mornings. But as I say, 
I just remind myself, even with my cognitive issues, I try to remember it will pass and it does. What are the things that you have really helped you? Like when you think back through this journey, if you were like, these building blocks will look different to someone else's, but my building blocks, my foundational blocks that I think have played a role in my recovery, what would those things look like for you? You need your tribe and you need your village. I'm a bit regretful talking in cliches, but they're cliches for a reason, right? So my tribe, shout out to the long COVID five. (laughs) I've got four long COVID buddies and we talk every single day on WhatsApp and we check in. How are you going? You know, who's in the poo today? It's not just about that peer support and having people who deeply understand where you're at. It's also about the practicality of one of us will go and see a particular specialist and realise that that specialist is great. I tell you what, for example, my beautiful friend Emma, she went and saw Professor Dennis Lau in Adelaide, who has a PhD student who has been on this pod, Marie-Claire Seely, who's doing her PhD on long COVID and POTS. So my beautiful friend Emma went and saw Professor Lau in Adelaide and she came through to me and she said, Beth, I think you need to go and see this guy. And it took me some months because I had my own cardiologist who, you know, was doing a couple of things. And eventually I was like, no, Emma's right. I need to go and see this guy. And lo and behold, most of my tribe, my long COVID five, have made the journey to Adelaide to see Professor Lau because he's the guy. He is. He is the guy. If you're in my situation, you probably need to go and see him. So that's what I would say. I would say your tribe that gives you the peer support, but also the practical support of uncovered this specialist, go and see him or her, I should say, and your village. So your tribe and your village, you know, it actually takes a village to support a very sick person. And my local community has been the best. And I would particularly call out my park run community who, you know, when I was was on my journey back, the first thing I did in January this year, I started to volunteer at Parkrun. So I said, look, what can I do that involves sitting down and 20 minutes, maybe 30? That's it. So that's what I did. I, I was photographer as a volunteer role, sitting down, 20 minutes, right, going home now, see you later. And then the next week I was a marshal at a particular point on the course where you can go home before it ends. So all of those kind of, you know, just people in your village who are just going to help you just a little bit, you know, they don't necessarily need to be in your inner circle, but that's what I would say, your tribe and your village. And Bethany, before we finish up today, there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about. One is exercise because this is like throwing around and like, for example, Potts loves exercise, but shit, it's hard. Like (laughs) I know that when I exercise, I will be better and it will give me more teaspoons back in my day, more energy. But there have been some days that I'm on a corner vomiting or the other day I was on the bike and I had to hop off and put my legs up the wall while everyone else kept cycling because I was like, if I don't get off, I'm going to faint. So there are really tough moments and it's hard to know how much is enough and how much is too much and a thousand other things that go in that pot. But for you, what's your kind of experience with exercise and what's it meant for you and how have you navigated that? Yeah, this is a really important point because there are points in your journey, if this is part of your journey, if you've got, say, a post-viral fatigue issue, there are points in your journey where exercise is going to be inappropriate. That's important for people to understand. And you might even need to be strong with some medical people because there are some medical people who might push exercise too early for you. So from quite early on, I was working with a physio who was developing a long COVID 
specialization. And so that version of exercise, it's almost doesn't deserve the word exercise. That was about movement and about making sure you're not, you know, although you're bed bound, you're not motionless. And that was an important part of my journey. And then as I, you know, found the right POT specialist and I got on the right POTS medication and I could find that I could move more, that was the signal for me that exercise might be back on the table and I work with an exercise physiologist. So Callum, big shout out to you, mate, because you (laughs) changed my life and Jackie. So, but I know Bethany, you've been working with Callum as well. And he's the guy we spoke about that did the cycle that inspired me. Such a superstar, changed my life. Same, same. This is the thing. It's about the dose, right? You need the right dose. And I'm going to call out my privilege, right? In being able to afford, you know, some extra medical help and coaching. But yes, I get help from Callum about what is the right amount. And that's been like a slow build. You know, I've been carefully building since I went on some better POTS medication in March. And so, you know, clearly I built from walking a certain amount and then walking a certain amount more and then walking faster and then I threw in some runs but all of that was with supervision so that you don't go too fast you know I use a heart rate monitor to make sure my heart is not too high I'm super careful with my hydration I have a regime around salt so salt with pots I won't go into the details on that but salt is important with pots and I time my salt and I need to watch how hot it is outside when I exercise, all these sorts of things. So exercise has been great for me. I have been able to build it up. I can jog, park, run. I can run the whole thing without stopping if it's not hilly, (laughs) if it's not hot. But for someone who has come from where I've come from, that is actually like, that's actually quite a huge milestone. It's massive. It's like my dream goal. It's like (laughs) so far away from where I am right now. I like, uh, I want to see you cross that line and be like, yes, amazing. (laughs) That's it. And and it's true. When I cross the line, my village from Park Run, they all applaud every time because they know what a big deal it is for me. So I I hope that gives a sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I want to put it in perspective. How hard has it been this journey and how much focus have you had to do on salt, water, monitoring? talking to your coaches compared to the world record. Let's just put this in perspective. Oh, I don't know. It might be about the same. Yeah, I'm thinking that. (laughs) But maybe that's the point, right? Sorry, there you go. That is the point. You want to set a world record or you want to exercise with POTS. They are the same. They are just as hard. Yep, absolutely. I have a whole nutrition plan just like I used to when I was training for my marathon world record attempt. What about the mindset? Has there been a shift in the language you told yourself when you were sick, the language you tell yourself now, or has there been a point along your road that you've been alerted to, oh, I'm kind of in this story in my head that I need to be aware of and perhaps change some of that language? I've had the fabulous opportunity to work with a cognition coach. And it's sometimes it's good to just talk in the very practical terms about how these things come about. I think it's an important point. There are people with long COVID who have no money, right? Like it's actually like it's, you know, we don't have enough time to talk about it, but like the economic consequences of I can't work anymore. You know, it's the same as my husband only works part time now because we both can't work because of my pots, genuinely can't. And so I love what I do so much. And so he is supporting that because he has to run everything 
he is the machine that does every other aspect of our life so that I can do this small window of work. So I can come on this podcast today. When I got quite sick and I had to stop working, I made an income protection insurance claim. So when I'm not working, I get paid by income protection. They actually funded a cognition coach who's a psychologist and I've been working with her on, you know, how do I work with a brain that doesn't work quite as well as it used to? Anyway, and I was talking to this psychologist slash cognition coach and she said to me, you know, you keep referring to yourself as sick. She said, I think you might just need to think about that because your mind and your body are quite literal. She's like, from my perspective, look at how far you've come, you know, look at how far you've come since we first started working together when on a good day, making yourself a cup of tea was your milestone. That was your marker for I've had success. I got out of bed and I made a cup of tea. And that was her feedback to me. And I've really taken that on board. So I I do start to try to talk about myself as recovering from long COVID, notwithstanding, I'm still a bit sick, you know, and in this pod, I've talked about being sick because that's important for people to know and understand and hear the journey and all that kind of stuff. But if you see me out and about, I actually try not particularly to talk about it. And this is one of the great things about exercise and volunteering and working. I've got other things going on in my life that I can talk about. I'm not always, oh, I'm sick. And if I am talking about it, I'm talking about progress and recovery. And I'm not talking about, oh, I'm sick. Yes. And that's that piece I just want to highlight between it's okay to grieve as well like we're not saying when you are in the thick of it you know I know when I was really sick I was sick and that was my world and there was no other language around that because I couldn't stand up and make a cup of tea but I'm a bit the same now Bethany and that's why I asked that question it's like you heard me say earlier I feel like I'm at the 80 percent and I'm like leaning into that you know I'm trying to focus on those things I'm trying to focus on that language in my head that's not you had three bad hours today I'm like I had nine good hours today, you know, not that that it doesn't make you better. Let's be clear, changing your mindset and using the good and trying to think about the things that you do have and the gratitude and what is working doesn't make you better, but it definitely sets you up for more success compared to focusing on the negative and focusing on the sick. And there does come a time in the journey that that shift needs to be made. And it's like, curious about am I where I my language is like the way I'm describing my world right now is that where I'm at or perhaps is is there a bit of a different story here now that I can start to have on repeat in my head and what would that story be and am I aware of that can I stretch that out a little bit and what are other people hearing from my voice and all of those things yeah exactly right I've got a number of firsts happening at the moment where I'm going back to pub trivia for the first time. But that happened a couple of months ago, right? So I'm already I'm already at my second and third, if you like, of pub trivia. So I'm looking at those milestones and like you, I'm kind of almost pushing. I mean, you don't want to push too much, right? But I'm almost happy to give that a little bit of a push and just see, you know, where is my social envelope at now? It might actually be you know, there might be more there than I think is possible. So that's like super exciting. Yeah. It's that balance between fear and what's actually going to make you better. (laughs) I I haven't worked it out yet, people. (laughs) Daily, not sure. (laughs) And recovery, you know, so. And recovery and being kind. And (laughs) if I know I don't have to work the next day, then I say, okay, 
I'm going to pub trivia. Yes. Oh, Bethany, we have had such a big conversation today. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want the audience to know or is there any messaging there, anything that you kind of want to sign off with today for our listeners? Look, the thing that I'm thinking about is my recovery is possibly slash probably better than average. I mean, it's, it is hard to know what's average. This disease is not well monitored and measured, so people don't really know quite you know, what's an average experience. But it's fair to say I talked earlier about my tribe, my long COVID-5. Not all of them are doing as well as me. Part of what I want to do here is just represent that there are some people who are going to be on a tougher journey, on a longer journey. And I think as a society and as communities, we're going to need to be there for those people. Yeah, I agree, Bethany. And we have spoken about that it looks different for everyone, but I often feel like that too, in the sense that I think I've had a very good recovery compared to some of my peers. And I will never know why that is. And I don't know if this is my recovery. I might have a flare up next week for six months. Who knows? At the moment, I do feel like I'm in that sort of top 10% of people that get their life back. And I'm back at work five days a week if I want to be. And like I mentioned, I'm back cycling and I know I feel quite privileged in that space. And so a big shout out to those that are out there that are still in it. And, you know, it's a long road and everyone has been so supportive of me and I encourage everyone to keep supporting the people around them. And if you're not sure, just ask, how are you? How can I help? What do you need? Or be okay if you see them do one thing one day and the next day you're like, well, how did they do that? But not this. Know that that's (laughs) one of the most common questions that I get asked like you just did this why can't you do this and give them the space that they need to kind of recover in the way that they need to recover. Sometimes people ask what can I do to help people with long COVID and I would say just don't forget that COVID's not over so at the moment there's definitely a big wave happening in Sydney and Melbourne and in fact probably not Sydney probably New South Wales and I'm just grateful to people who will think to themselves I'm a little bit sick today I'm going to go and do a rat test And then they might go and do a rat test and go, oh, actually, I've got COVID. I'm going to stay home. So for people with long COVID, that is actually like, it's hard for me to find the words to express how important that is for us because we just really can't get COVID again. I mean, we can, right? But the implications are huge. The implications are huge. We're not eligible for antivirals yet. So if we want to get antivirals, we're going to have to pay for them, which is more than $1,000. It's not a great situation. So if you want to know how you can help my community, that's the answer. And Bethany, I love to finish every episode with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. Like, you know, the belly laugh that you just fall on the floor or someone can hear you all the way up the hallway, or it just brings so much joy to your soul. I knew this question was coming and so did my husband. So he's been trying to make me laugh ever since I got an invite to come onto this pod. (laughs) So we, well, you got me. Yeah, exactly. Which, which has been, it's, it's actually been quite a fun few weeks. So definitely my husband, Matt, makes me laugh. And I just want to give a couple of like super quick examples. I'd like to let everyone know that one of my Guinness World Records is a joint world record with Matt. We set the record for the fastest half marathon by a married couple some years back because he heard I was doing these world records. He was like, that, that sounds hilarious. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, How do much. I get in? <laughs> and the other thing is he's recently started going to open mic nights with his banjo and he's roped me in to that I'll have you know I'm now singing just a little bit on open mic nights now let me tell you that requires all sorts of preparation from someone who's you know recovering 
as we've established, I'm not sick, I'm recovering. And every song that we sing, there's got to be something that's hilarious about it. So our most recent one was I Was Made for Love and You Baby by Kiss, but my husband plays the banjo. So you've got to imagine a hard rock song, but now it's a ballad on a banjo sung by me. So he is making me laugh all the time. And that joy, I love hearing that joy in your world now because that's something that can totally go amiss when you get a chronic illness, long COVID, POTS, all the other illnesses out there. It's like the joy just gets yeah, popped correct. out of your life. <laughs> yes, Catch you later. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Forget what yeah. that feels like. So I love hearing that. I love hearing that you're laughing. <laughs> I love your husband. So thank you for making me laugh today. And Bethany, I really appreciate you coming on because it really was a big deal. And that's, I think we've talked about it, but I don't know that people will actually get it. Like for both of us to sit here today and have an hour conversation took a lot of prep work. So thank you for finding the time and sharing your story with us. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Bethany may not know this, but doing this interview inspired me to find a way to run again. I loved running so much. It was nothing to do a half marathon before breakfast when I was able to train. I thought since I developed POTS that my running days were over. But today, today I got that little spark of hope that anything is possible. And this is why I love the podcast and our community so much. You guys inspire me every day. And I hope that through listening to these episodes, you find that little sparkle of hope that I just found in this episode. Together, we can rise up and out of any life challenges. If you haven't already joined us in the Challenges That Change Us Facebook community group, I would love to invite you over. Or if you know someone who may benefit from hearing this episode today, please share it with them. I will put all the information around POTS Foundation and the POTS Conference that's coming up in 2024 in the show notes. I will be down in Adelaide for the whole weekend and I would absolutely love you to come up and introduce yourself if you come. I hope you guys have a fabulous week and I will see you all next Monday with bells on. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.